It doesn't matter how old you are or young. It doesn't matter where you live in the world or how new your house is. Ghosts are walking among us. Today, I've got a new story for you about a haunting in Minnesota. Afterwards, we'll hear real-life ghost stories from a fellow podcaster, and we'll cap it all off with a ghost story from a listener as well. It's a ghost-packed episode today, so turn off the lights, find a safe hiding space, and fall in to haunting season. So last night, my neighbor brings over her cousin to hang out with the group and play Cards Against Humanity. And everything's going great. He's a super nice guy. We're all having a blast. But then he asks to go use the bathroom. Well, we're a typical Minnesota house. The only bathroom is on the second floor. So I tell him up the stairs, take a left into the hall, and it's the door halfway down. And he's got a normal amount of time. But when he comes back, he says to me privately... What's going on with that room? Which room? I ask. And we both slowly look up as he points directly above us. And that's when I knew it wasn't just me. I wasn't just stressed out or whatever. This was really happening. We bought the house about a year ago. It was in the same neighborhood as a few close friends. When my husband George saw it, he fell in love. Hardwood floors, clawfoot tub, extra bedrooms with a good price to kick it. And the basement was a typical unfinished basement for a Minnesota house. Poured concrete, exposed ceiling, and a cold room or or dirt room. I can't remember the right word for it. But basically just one part of the wall in the basement opens up into dirt, carved away into a little room where people used to store food. See, it's cold here most of the year. But especially in the winter, we get negative 60 wind chills and a lot of snow that sticks around. The cold room always creeped me out a little bit. I I think as humans, we like things that are finished. And this was just a hole in the side of our basement, straight into the dirt. But George assured me that this was normal and that the chances of a gopher digging into our house was slim. So we moved in. And the first night we climbed into bed exhausted. Everything was still in boxes, but we had managed to find our clothes and set up the bed. George passed out in mere seconds, which he always does, which is annoying. But I... I couldn't. I I don't know what it was. I, I just couldn't close my eyes. It was like... I don't know how to explain it. I, I think it felt like being embarrassed. Like a hot pressure on my face. I put my phone away, I tried a cooling mask, and and nothing shook this heat on my skin. And I tossed and turned, trying to force myself to sleep, but finally just went downstairs to sit on the couch and read. And then all of a sudden it was morning, and George was bringing me coffee. Boy, it was freezing last night. I have to get these radiators fixed up. Was it warmer down here? I didn't know what to say didn't feel cold to me. The next night, the same thing happened. And the night after that. Eventually, with the whole house set up, I started to escape into the guest room once George fell asleep and would sneak back early in the morning. But every time I set foot in that room, I just felt sick. 
embarrassed, uncomfortable. Even in the daytime, it was like being allergic. George brought in someone to look for mold again. They didn't find any during the inspections, nor did they now. Just me being crazy, I guess. But night after night, as I tried to sleep next to my husband, I was forced out. Of course, I couldn't keep it a secret for long. George started to notice, and of course his feelings were hurt, so I tried to stay until the morning. That night, I saw it. Laying there, sweating in my pajamas, soaking my pillow, sick to my stomach. At the foot of the bed, almost like a a gathering of air, of energy, a, a dark collection of dust particles and static electricity formed by the closet door, tall and and almost shapeless. It sounds stupid, but almost like a black piece of tool from the fabric store, but made up of moving microbes and energy. It hovered, slowly moving forward as I tried to make it out in the dark. Inching closer, as the heat on my face started to itch and it stopped at the end of my bed and started to rise towards the ceiling. I could feel anger inside of it. Hatred running through it like blood. And that was the night before the neighbor brought her cousin over. What do you mean what's going on with that room? (laughs) I asked him. Uh... This is going to sound weird, and I I don't want to freak you out, but the second I got to the top of the stairs, I felt like something was watching me from the bedroom. Now, I scare really easily, so I brushed it off, and I went to go pee, but when I came back, I feel like it was in the doorway, blocking the bedroom. It even looked darker in there, like when I first passed it, I could see some details inside, but on the way back, it was hard to see anything. And I just felt this shape, like this cloaked person standing in the doorway. I hugged him, which was weird, but I pulled back with tears on my cheek and and I told him everything. I hadn't been able to sleep in the same bed as my husband in months, almost a year since moving into this house. It felt good to be seen, for someone to believe me. But this, it wasn't the whole story. As we got back to the group, we had finished playing cards and we were all sitting around the living room drinking cocktails. I began to explain what had just happened between me and the guest. I was sitting next to my best friend Tess and everyone in the room was facing each other and my phone was on the side table out of reach of anybody. And as I tell the group what's been going on this past year and how this new person just showed up tonight and has the same experience my phone flies into the middle of the room and Tess stands up and screams not again no I'm done I'm done wait what do you mean not again the new guy asks I I think his name was Luke or something like that (laughs) what do you mean not again and Tess starts to pace and, and she's chanting No, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. Enough is enough. You have to get out of this house. This happens every time I'm over here. Every fucking time. You have to get out. Get out. Get out. Get out of my house! 
and the room goes silent. Tess breathing like a bull. In the middle of the room, her, her voice lowers. Get out of my house! And then, uh... And then I'm, I'm not actually sure what happened after that. I mean, I know everybody called it a night. I know I slept on the couch, but I can't remember how we wrapped things up. I mean... I know we were all pretty drunk and it was cold and, and pretty windy that night and sometimes you, you kind of get carried away. So I, I think we just called it a night quickly after that. The next morning, I got Luke's number from my neighbor and I texted him. He was about to board a plane back to New York and I asked him if he remembered last night. He said he would never forget and asked if I could remember anything weird leading up to this that may have caused the... Well, ghost, he, he called it a ghost, to get attached to me, me in particular. I told him no. I said before this, before moving into this house, I had never experienced anything paranormal. I didn't typically believe in this stuff. I mean, once in college, we played with a Ouija board, but I got scared and put it away. Did you say goodbye? was the next text that I got. What do you mean? Did you close the session? Did you say goodbye before putting it away? I typed back something like, no, there was all this talk about some stupid name like Zaza or Mimi or something, and everyone started fighting about who was moving the thing on the board. Zozo? Yes, oh my god, yes, Zozo. It was Zozo, such a stupid name. And then the stuff being spelled out started getting mean, and we were kind of drunk, so I quit the game, and we packed it up. But no, we didn't say goodbye. There was a long pause. You could see him typing and stopping. Typing and stopping. And finally the message came through. My plane's about to take off. It was nice meeting you. I'm, I'm sorry you're dealing with this. I'm not a professional, but I've been involved in this stuff long enough to know that what you are experiencing is real. I saw it. I felt it too. To make it stop, you have to find the exact board and end this session. Not just any board, that board. Take it out, place the planchet, and say goodbye, moving it over the spot on the board that says goodbye, and then get rid of the board. Okay. Thank you. I texted back, and I put down my phone, and I started to cry, because I don't know where that board is. It was a long time ago, and we've all moved around a lot and lost contact. It could be anywhere, if it even exists at all. Today's episode is brought to you by Mixtape Massacre, the 1980s-styled slasher killer board game. You can have up to six players, each one some sort of paranormal slasher monster-type creature with a cool origin story and a great character design. You take turns roaming the town, racking up kills, and collecting trophies like severed hands, teeth, and eyeballs, and try to come out either with the most kills or be the last surviving. It takes about 15 minutes to learn and 90 minutes to play with six people. You can check it out at hauntingseasonpod.com mixtape, and if you want to buy the game, we'll offer 
offer you 10% off, which is more than 0% off, so why not? It's a cool game. Right now it's my favorite game. You should at least check it out. Good evening, world, and welcome to Haunting Season. This past week, I was a guest on the Disc Dungeon podcast to talk about The Curse of 32. That episode is coming out soon, but as we started to wrap up the recording, Joe Dove, one of the hosts of the Disc Dungeon podcast, mentioned that he had some ghost stories of his own. And since I was planning on telling one this week anyway, I thought, well, what the heck, let's get him on the phone and do this thing. So here he is in the office today. Say hi, Joe. Hi, Joe. Of course, I had to do it that way. Josh, thank you so much for having me on. It's such an honor to be here with you. Yeah, I had such a good time with you and Julian talking about the Curse of 32. I just wanted to like, I don't know, keep talking and we've become friends, you know, over the past couple of weeks and you even sent me something in the mail. Yeah, absolutely. That is the infamous Robert Johnson CD collection. And that is Robert Johnson's, the infamous starter of the 27 Club for our era. And uh, he sold his soul to the devil in order to become a great guitarist. They even gave you like a full backstory too, right? Yeah, and here's what your note had to say. I have it right here. Welcome, Josh, to the depths of the disc dungeon. I hope this CD finds you whole, as the man singing on it didn't last long after its release. Hello, I am Joe Dove of the Disc Dungeon Podcast. This is the album from Robert Johnson. To truly understand his history, you'd have to return to an era where many could not read and write, let alone read music. Though some could mimic sounds when handed an instrument, they truly had no understanding of it. Most people would give up, but Robert Johnson's desire for fame and fortune led him to a dooming, dank, dark death. It was a dark night in Clarksdale, Mississippi in 1920, a talentless guitar dreamer who studied with a dignified musician for hours and days took a new path. Despite all this time and practice, Young Robert Johnson was no closer to playing the simple song Happy Birthday on the cherished string instrument. His teacher thought he would be best suited for something else. These conversations rattled in Johnson's head as well as the incarnation to summon the devil himself. His goal was to have the success playing guitar and the fame which came in tune. At the stroke of midnight, he walked down to the windswept crossroads at the junction of Highway 61 and 49, spouted words, and was never the same. Upon his return, the lore is said that he was a sensation, a master guitar player that inspired so many covers from Clapton to Jimi Hendrix. However, when you meet the devil for personal gain, you lose. In Robert Johnson's case, he lost his life at the young age of 27, strychnine poisoning. If that number sounds familiar to you in music, it's the same age Jimi Hendrix was when he died. Janis Joplin, Kurt Cobain, Jim Morrison, Amy Winehouse, Brian Jones, founder of the Rolling Stones, Ron McKernan, Grateful Dead, all died at the same mysterious age shortly after reaching some fame and fortune. Could they all have made the same agreement at the crossroads? Did Robert Johnson begin a curse that echoed to this date? Does his powerful blues guitar influence all of these musicians, or just the practice of selling souls? Will you hear the lyrics of Crossroads and wonder, my virtual moment, will it bring me peace or doom? Well, I don't know how old you are, but I hope it's over 27, as the Cursed Club reaches across genres. Enjoy the album and the Disc Dungeon Magnet. Can't wait to have you on the show, Joe Dove, Disc Dungeon Podcast. And of course, Joe... I then came on the show, I was saying in the intro here, to talk about the sister curse, the curse of 32. But I want to get back to what we're talking about today. 
So this is what Joe sent me in the mail, along with this disc collection of this demonic blues music. <laughs> it's not really demonic. Yeah. Uh, it's just like has that it, devilish backstory. But it also has like this creepy sound, though. Like I, I've listened to it a few times myself. And I find that like, it's, I don't know if it's just because it's in my head from the backstory or the way he plays guitar. It's just kind of haunting. Yeah. You know, it's not like a, it's not like a normal person. Like I've dabbled in the guitar. I'm not that great. But I've heard a lot of other people play, and the, the, the richness of it is great. But listening to Robert Johnson, it was just like, oh, there's something eerie going on here. <laughs> so if you can't tell, Joe is a huge fan of music, and actually his entire podcast is about music. It's called The Disc Dungeon. Can you give us a rundown of what your show is? Sure. And how it got started? Yeah, absolutely. So... <laughs> I'll give you the an abridged version, but I had this mentor in school who had uh, some issues growing up. He called himself Dusan, and he had the largest CD collection I've ever seen. He had literally a two-bedroom apartment because his second bedroom was an entire collection of CDs and vinyl. So it was like a friend with a record store in his apartment. Initially, it was called Dusan Disc Dungeon, but he moved on and moved away. So I actually got to Julian and he is a music producer. And we said, you know what? Let's work on this together. So we put you on to music, some melodies in the deepest, darkest dungeons of your computer disc. And I'm the co-host, Joe Dove, music connoisseur. And with me as always will be Julian Valencia. Uh, he's a music producer and singer. So we have a lot of fun. And the basic gist of it is he'll put me onto something he's been inspired by, what he was working on with his music. And I'll put him onto something that has a lot of meaning in my life. And we'll discuss it, share our experiences with it. And we'll even give you a little trick of the keys. And that's a song with a different meaning than you heard. Yeah, I, I love it. I've been able to find a couple of new bands through you guys already, and I've only been listening for a couple of weeks. And you guys always have a lot of fun, but you also have all this history that comes along with it. And you guys really, you know, Joe, you do the Dove Dives, and we'll talk about the lyrics. I was most recently listening to your Lord Huron one. I've been a big fan of his music for a while now, but I'm not a lyric guy, so I, I never really catch most of what's going on in the lyrics. It's more about, like, the feeling of music to me is why I listen. And it's really nice to have have someone who does listen to the lyrics kind of explain them to me. I, I That's one of the main things I love about your show. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, the Dove Dive was something that I experimented with because Julian, since he's a music producer, will get like blocks of different artists coming in. So we'll have to like adjust our schedules. And the Dove Dive came of that because some people have been putting me onto music separately and I'll just do a dive into the artists and the music they've been talking about. And I have a lot of fun doing it because I love to research and listen to new music and hear about different artists. Yeah. I, I stumbled into a disc dungeon one time myself, and I don't think I told you this. Um, so a bunch of friends wanted to do, you know, when Drunk History was really taking off? Yes. They wanted to do High History, and they happen to know this guy who, his name is Mantis. Oh, neat. Yeah, I think he's a bass player or something, and he was in like, he was in some big band like Megadeth or something. Holy I don't shit. really That's remember because awesome. it was so long ago. But we got invited out to his house, and he had produced a bunch of Radiohead and some jazz albums and like all this stuff so in his house through his basement there was a second basement and you go down the stairs and it's like really narrow and floor to ceiling on both walls was compact discs and records in this like really skinny long hallway and it opened up into a recording studio that was perfectly soundproof and had a spot for the drums in the middle and it was shaped like an octagon and each side of the octagon was its own booth all facing the drummer so 
you could do full sessions where all the band members are playing live but are completely isolated from the other band members. That is amazing. That's what probably Dusan wanted. <laughs> and that's definitely what I and Julian would most likely want for the real Dusan That is yeah. awesome. Yeah. That's so epic. I wonder if during COVID he brought like a bunch of canned food down there and just like hit out. <laughs> it's like, well, this is the end. Let me just hang out. <laughs> hang out, listen to hi-fi records all day. Oh my God, perfect. So now, Joe, you're a fan of horror as well, right? I mean, that's oh how we got connected. God. Dude, funny story. Stephanie Sotilli, who's a friend of mine from, I, I used to do videography for independent wrestling. A lot of the wrestlers and I will talk and we're all like big horror fans, especially John Carpenter, The Thing, Halloween is huge, especially this guy, Anthony Gangone. And I will always talk about Michael Myers and like the different Halloween movies, but he has the rare exception to be okay with loving Halloween 3. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we'll let it go. But Stephanie Sotilli put me on to you. She sent me a video and she was like, wow, you should talk to this guy. He's really cool. And I saw your video and I was blown away by how you were able to loop your TikToks. And I was like, this guy's brilliant, man. This, and then I've been, I watched like, I flooded you. You probably thought I was a weirdo, but <laughs> I flooded your like, your page with likes. I was like, this guy's really good and he really gets it. He, he's so descriptive and can get into the nitty gritty, so to speak, with the horror movies. And I'm, I picked up so many different ones watching your show. I actually ordered session nine because I was listening to your show. I had to order it because I really want to see it now. It has a lot of people that I'm familiar with as an actor. So I'm really intrigued. It sounds like a great story. Oh, yeah. You're going to love it. It's great. Yeah. Now, I mentioned that you have some true life ghost stories for us, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But on these story episodes, I like to get a little bit of feedback from my guests about the story that I told and answer some questions you might have. So so what do you think of the story? Great story. It reminded me a lot of the experiences that I had growing up in my neighborhood. It was eerily coinciding with a lot of the things that I've experienced, the unwanted guest, so to speak. So I grew up in a Hessian neighborhood. So it brings a lot of interesting throwbacks with the way you experience that static electricity that balls up and, and formulates into something. And it just gives you this eerie feeling as if somebody's watching you. Those little tiny whispers that you believe are just in your head, but maybe are actual. And I just find that the cold when you enter a room that I feel doesn't really belong to you, but belongs to someone that's beyond is just so spot on. And your affection and a flair for horror and the way you describe and elicit your descriptions of the horror genre is just always pulling me in. So I'm so happy to be here discussing this with you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks, man. Do you have any questions about it? I'm kind of like skirting around telling you something, but I would just want to like open the floor a little bit before I, I, I have this reveal. Okay. So was this an experience that you had? Personally, yeah, that's the reveal. Is I'm Luke in the story, and this is ah, this is a real experience. So, holy smokes! So, in Minnesota, I used to go like once every three months and go ghost hunting with this group. And at the end of one of these trips, it was like middle of February, and my cousin Shannon was like, Oh, you got to come over to my friend's house. We're going to play Cards Against Humanity. And I'm the guy who went upstairs and went to the bathroom and came back down. And I was like feeling, you know, really sensitive to stuff because I'd been on, I think, maybe two ghost hunts, both overnight, and like had some really interesting experiences. And so I, I was like kind of more opened up than usual to it. And I was just like, Hey, what's going on with that room? And she was like, oh, my God. And like told me all this stuff. Yeah. Like her reaction at the well, at the end was unparalleled, especially it reminded me of my best friend 
her name is Shaquilla and her house. It was almost like we had the same experience just in different parts of the United States. <laughs> yeah. But I also like, I don't know this person. Like I met them that one night and then left. And then she was texting me w- when I got on my airplane. And then I, I don't know what happened after that because it really was left off with like, well, I, I have no idea where that Ouija board is. Yeah. I got back to New York after that trip and I didn't tell the person who I met up with. You did wrestling. I did roller derby. And so this roller derby girl I was meeting up with, her name, uh, her derby name is Stup, which means to shove something into something else. Um, <laughs> and she is uh, part Native American. Oh. She's like head to toe covered in tattoos and dreadlocks. Oh, she sounds amazing. <laughs> Absolutely. Like so cool. And we're sitting at this bar and I didn't mention anything about ghost hunting or where I had been or even that I was out of town. And she just reached up next to my ear and clapped really hard. And I was like, what was that for? And she was like, you just had something like hanging on to you. Ooh. So I needed to get rid of it. And I was like, oh my God, I went ghost hunting this weekend. <laughs> oh, wow. So she like picked up on it. Oh my God. Yeah. So you lived in New York at any point or? Yeah, I lived in New York for like almost a decade and a bunch of different spots. I lived in Inwood, Spanish Harlem, Bushwick, Crown Heights. Oh, like Harlem proper. Like I lived a couple blocks away from the Apollo. That's crazy. My mom used to go out with a former executive at Sony Entertainment and he lived on 110. Oh yeah. I was like 119th. Yeah. I used to hang out down there when he would always invite me over for chicken wings and i'm like oh come on uh, don't be stereotypical (laughs) (laughs) i love new york because it's got so much history what i find even more amazing about new york is people will decide you know what i'm going to make this giant building and then they'll start digging up and then they'll find a whole settlement Mm. like a lot of north harlem was a black village an african-american village that was just filled in and covered and then they built central park on top of it and then the upper east side was a dutch settlement and some of it kind of remains because you know washington was here there and everywhere but the majority of that was also buried and forgotten about and there's so much that i feel personally i don't know if you've ever felt this when you're walking around new york city that was just left uneased and they hated what's become of the area that they settled in Mm. Yeah, I mean, New York has a very colorful past. And actually, my wife has been told that her family at one point owned the island of Manhattan and got basically swindled into selling it before it became New York City. Oh, is is your wife Native American? No, I think it was post-Native American, pre-full settlement. Oh, okay, gotcha. Somewhere in there. And it also could be total horseshit. I have no idea. (laughs) It's like some relative told her that, you know, I don't know. My grandmother told me I'm part Viking, but then I found out everybody is. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So ghost story, tell me your your ghost story. So you said this resonated. We've danced around it a little bit. Feed me. All right. Feed feed me. Join (laughs) us. Feed me, (laughs) Seymour. I lived in a quaint little area of Mount Vernon, New York and Westchester. Our neighborhood is called Chester Hill Park. Greater Chester Hill was a larger settlement that pretty much got more and more developed around a church. Most like towns of that era did. We have St. Paul's Church, which is the big historical church that was part of the original East Chester. If you guys ever watched Sleepy Hollow, a lot of the events that were spoken about came from that neighborhood from St. Paul's Church before they moved up city to Sleepy Hollow. You know, as I got older, I discovered that a lot of revolutionary skirmishes, battle skirmishes, took place in my neighborhood. If you know anything about the old skirmishes, they used these like pellets 
and all the deaths were slow and agonous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it wasn't all like, Cap, you did. And then you carry on. It was like, all right, buddy, uh, don't, you better run because I'm loading this bayonet, you know? Yeah, there were no full metal jackets back then. No, it was no. just pewter bullshit. Yep. <laughs> yep. Oh, I need bullets. All right, quick. Uh, melt down that spork that we made. <laughs> and we're going to use that for bullets. <laughs> so a lot of these people, I feel, died in such agony in my neighborhood that they've left something behind. There's so many different things that I've experienced growing up there. I'm going to mention two that stand out more than anything else. And one of which ex I was experienced, both of actually, which I've experienced with my neighbors. But there's one house in the neighborhood. My house was the second to oldest there was one house built in the late 1700s and then there's my house was, was built in 1906 but my neighbor's house was covered over the old farmland and if you knew anything about farmers they actually buried their dead in the land so there's always something creepy about that house and i love i spent most of my time there and i remember a lot of my friends and relatives even my mom were like oh you know you may see something every now and then but it's only a trick of your brain son uh no they were wrong <laughs> so so my two best friends shaquilla and uh, i call them q had this big brown house it had this charm because it was built like a barn but it was in a victorian way if you looked underneath the stairs, the stairs would go into a crevasse and then open up into a larger space because of the way the house was built, you could kind of store things there. The people that lived there before were an Irish family that lived in the house since the house was built. They actually were the builders of the house in that era, 1907 to 1998. So they lived there quite a long time. One thing that's different between then and now is it was very rare that you could be afforded the opportunity to put a relative in a nursing home. You usually had to take care of those older folks in your family until it was their time. So when their time was up, it happened at home. Over the years, I found that many of original residents in my neighborhood had just passed away in their houses. So I don't know if they've ever released that information to people, but I'm sure you could foil it. Yeah, there's something with disclosure where you have to disclose it. But I think certain places you only have to do that if someone asks. Yeah, that's probably the same thing in New York. Yeah, yeah. Was anyone murdered in this house? No. Did they die? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But they were happy. <laughs> <laughs> so my best friend Q and Shaquilla, one day they decided, hey, you know what? We want to take out all their old shag carpet. Do you mind helping us? And I said, oh, you know, I'm a big dude. I'm like, I'm not very tall, but I'm strong. So anytime somebody in the neighborhood needed something, it was called Joe because he's strong. <laughs> sure enough, we're ripping up the carpet. Years, years later, this is like 2007. We rip up this carpet. We noticed that this floor has this immaculate plain oak planks, straight, thick, maybe three feet thick oak planks just going straight up and down in the bedroom. We were like, that's interesting. Well, you don't, you don't see that. So as we're like stripping off this carpet, we get to the center of the room. We also notice that it's painted green. And we're like, oh, that's even more peculiar. Why would you paint oak green? That doesn't make any sense. Hmm. Then we finally get to the center of the room and we notice that the paint stopped. It was just the plain oak. And we're like, oh, oh that's good. They finally gave the oak a rest. So we pulled up the last strip of the carpet and we noticed that it was in a perfect square that wasn't painted. And in the center of that was written... It's not fair in red. No. It's a creep. No. Yes, the creepiest thing. <laughs> we were like, what the hell? So, of course, this is my buddy's room, and he's like, okay, we're scraping this out first. <laughs> <laughs> 
Was it written in paint or like carved in? Or It was written in paint because they used to do it in the 60s and 70s where they just put this filler in and it's this spongy filler and then they put the carpet on top and call it a day. They don't mess with the floor. They didn't sand it. It's like, well, we're putting carpet. Who cares? And had you ripped up any other carpet in any other rooms? Yeah, like these old houses, when they built them, the builders actually leave tokens behind. Mm-hmm. So if you get a house that was built pre-World War II and you start ripping up panels, you might find coins from that era that it was built. Q found a silver dollar that was created in 1907. It was on the mint mark. So, you know, that was creepy in itself. And it was wrapped in a way that was also eerie. It was like in an envelope, in a cloth envelope. But like they put something over top of it that when he opened it, the coin just fell out. And there was like some strange note, but he couldn't make it out because the handwriting was so strange. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. But in ripping up the carpet in other rooms, it wasn't like every room was painted green. No, 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 no. Okay, so there goes my theory. Because I was like, oh, if every other room was green, then he ran out of paint and then wrote, (laughs) it's not fair. I don't have enough Because he didn't, he maybe couldn't (laughs) afford another can of green paint. (laughs) If it were only that easy. So there's a perfect square and it says it's not fair in the middle of it. What happens next? When I was a boy, I used to spend most of my time with Shaquilla and Q had moved to Jamaica. So the place had been carpeted, the whole floor carpeted head to toe. But she had another brother named Dave that would live up there. And they asked me to bring him food one time because he got quite ill. And I was about maybe 10 or 12 or so. And I'm like, sure, whatever. So I go upstairs with this tray. And then something just said, look up. And I look up and it felt like somebody was watching me and then moved away from the banister. So keep in mind, these old houses have these wooden planks that if you put a nightlight in the middle of the wall, it casts the shadow on the walls of the banister. So it's kind of eerie looking anyway. But as I'm going up to this third floor to bring the food over to Dave, I see this peeking. It looks like just a little old man putting his hands on the railing and then moving back. And I was like, nah, I just thought it was Dave. And I was like, nah, it's no big deal. So I went to Dave, gave him his food and, you know, noticed that he was in bed. I was like, oh, you know, you didn't have to get up. I was going to bring it all the way over. As I'm placed the food down and he's coughing and everything, he says, I didn't have it moved from this bed in two days. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Weird. 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 So, you know, fast forward a few years and they decide that they need to clean out some of the storage rooms. And we found the letter of passing from the patriarch of the family. He had become bedridden in an accident at the house. He had to be confined to his bed on the third floor. Back in those days, the kids lived on the second floor. The first floor was for entertainment and the folks that couldn't get around, they would only bring him out for like big family dinners. So most of the time they would just bring the food up to him and he could probably walk far enough to the banister to watch people bring him his food. So we basically assume that this is the spirit of the man who died in the house years ago, who was injured and couldn't walk all the way down to the first floor to get his food anymore. Oh my gosh. I have so many questions. Like, Oh, I have so many things to tell you, Ralph. <laughs> if someone has mobility issues, putting them on a third floor walk up seems like problematic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Seems like a bad spot. It's like, oh, yeah, we're going to bring him out for Thanksgiving. I've been cooking all day. I got to go carry Grandpa down the steps. Hold on, Grandpa. I'm hungry. It's not fair. (laughs) (laughs) Just hanging over the banister. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, if he can't get out of there as a human, yeah, of course he's stuck up there. Absolutely. So what do ghosts eat and how do you bring them snacks? I guess they just eat vicariously whatever you're eating. (laughs) (laughs) They just suck your energy. That's all. Yeah, exactly. So here's where it gets super weird. I was in Q's house a couple of years later when they were clearing out stuff, as I was saying. 
And there's two rooms in the house, no matter what you did. You put a heater there. They finally boarded it up and put insulation. But the rooms were always the coldest. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So we were like, what is up with that? So there was actually the setup was for six children. There was the main bathroom, the master bedroom, so to speak, and three bedrooms on the first floor and the same setup for the second floor, which was the third floor, actually, because the first floor had the kitchen, dining room and such. So one day we're up there and we smelled like cigar smoke. And I'm like, oh, I'm asking Shaquille. I was like, Shaky, did your dad pick up smoking lately? And she's like, no, no. But ever since we moved in here, every now and then we'd smell cigar smoke, but only up here. And I'm like, are you literally taking me to the haunted room in this house (laughs) (laughs) to help you go through stuff? Like, why? Why do you do this to me? She's not going to do it herself. No, I guess so. Joe's strong. He can stop ghosts. No, I can't. (laughs) My strength is only in this physical plane. So fast forward to 2008. So this is about a few years ago now. I ended up joining a group of different neighborhood associations and we found out more histories about each of our neighborhood associations in our neighborhoods. Cool. Yeah, it was cool until I started digging. (laughs) So one year I find out that aside from the skirmish with the Hessians, there was uh, the, the title of the plaque is one American fell and 10 Hessians died at this spot. There was a tavern down the block from where Shaquilla lived, which is even further down from where I lived, where the Americans were, you know, spending their time at the tavern. And the Hessians thought it would be a good idea to surprise them and wipe out at least this little infantry that's there because we lived right off the main egress for George Washington. And when he lost in Manhattan and started retreating up north, we had what's known as Memorial Field, where Glover, General Glover, blocked the Hessians and British from actually capturing Washington, and he was able to go up 22 Post Road to the Battle of White Plains, where they turned the tide of the war, and we ultimately got our independence. We're looking at all this history in our neighborhood, and we find out, yes, there was a big farm there. The Native Americans were moved from the settlement as the Americans came in, and the Americans all couldn't afford to bury their dead at St. Paul's. So there is a place, two places in the neighborhood where the farmers put their bodies of their past loved ones. So it's technically a graveyard, and it happens to be behind Shaquilla's house. <laughs> and it's also like this, it's Shaquilla's house and then all the way to the highway because the highway like wraps our whole neighborhood. And there's this large green space that we were always like, why didn't they make all this green space? Why didn't they just like finish out the neighborhood? We had this thing called the Cross County Parkway. And when they expanded it, they cut down all these houses and they paved over more graves from the original farmers. And we actually found the marking stone for the parents, the, the last people that lived there that couldn't afford to be buried at the, you know, greater graveyard site in the town and it's just a, a boulder with their names etched in wow which brings me to my second story in this neighborhood so one day i'm with a friend my godfather was a philanthropist but he was very big into he's a wealthy guy most of the people in my neighborhood were very affluent except for me <laughs> <laughs> He says to me, hey, you know, I hurt my back. Do you mind helping me walk a couple of dogs? I said, oh, absolutely. I'll help you. And he said, oh, good news. Your god sister's here. And my god sister, her name was Suzette. She's a very sweet woman, but, you know, she was out there. I said, yeah, okay, great. She can take some dogs. I'll take the other dogs. and We'll make this go quickly. So she's like talking to me. You have a girlfriend? Because she was always kind of into me. And I was like, I just don't get it. <laughs> but uh, we're walking and we have this, like, I called it the promenade. It's this area where everybody pretty much walks their dogs it's this nice tree covered makes a canopy with the neighborhood and it's grass laden so we're walking and we hear this whistle like a and i'm like who is that and we're looking around we don't see anybody and then we hear it again 
And we're like looking around. We don't see anything at all. And we're like going down the, we're like speeding up, going down the block, trying to see if maybe Bob's calling us. That was his name. Or maybe one of the other neighbors. And we're looking at houses to see if somebody's trying to play a trick on us. It's like, it's not funny. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of our block and the next block, we see this light in the shape of a stag just go up in between where we were. Like a Patronus? Like a Patronus, yes. So, yeah, like Harry Potter, it was just like that. And it jumped into the center. And it wasn't like slow like in Harry Potter. It's this thing that of light that just jumped into the middle and it stopped there. And it reminded me much of a stag, the way it was shaped. And then it just jumped off into the middle of the promenade and just went out of sight. And I was like, Suzette, did you see that? Please tell me you saw that. She goes, I saw that and I want to go home now. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember hearing these folklores about these lights that kind of happen that you see in the neighborhoods. And I was able to see one. I remember one time I was the same block, but like 20 years later, this is like 2015, right before I moved, I was talking, I got involved in politics, was hanging out with a lot of people. Some of the big wigs in the town were on that block and they had a big fundraiser, like a cottage fundraiser for one of the people that were running for office. And one of the women had stopped me and were, were talking to me about like planning and everything. And then I just stopped her conversation and I looked behind me really fast and there was a guy that was just walking and he looked down and he was like, oh, hello. And then he just kept going. And she says, we're halfway in the middle of the block. And you noticed that guy? And I was like, I don't know. Just something told me to turn around. It was weird. You know, I tried to explain the story that I just told you about the dancing light that I saw. And she was like, I don't know. I don't know if I believe that. Maybe it was like a trick of gas because there's a gas line in the middle. <laughs> Yo, what's up with everyone always saying it's gas? Like, I don't know. That's always the every time I have a stomach ache, it's gas. Every time, yeah. you know, every time my heart hurts, it's gas. Every time a, a light pops out of the woods looking like a deer and flies away <laughs> into the middle of the promenade, gas. Gas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just gas. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and then the same woman that hosted the party, she came outside later when the woman that I was speaking to was like shocked that I noticed the presence of the guy that was walking good hundred feet away from me just up the block she said oh did you hear the whistle you ever hear those whistles <laughs> so it turns out that everybody in the neighborhood pretty much is aware of this like mysterious whistle that you'll hear at night i love that i love it because you know a lot of times you don't get adults or or people in general talking about ghosts but when there's something that unifies them, like, oh, yeah, there's that weird whistle. Like, everyone gets a little twinkle in their eye because you know they want to believe. Yeah. But they won't let themselves because they're, like, young professionals or parents or whatever. But, like, you know, deep down, I think we all kind of just believe a little bit. Right? Well, Joe, this has been so much fun. It sounds like you've got many more stories, so we're just going to have to do this again. Absolutely. I'm always down. Call me anytime. I love it. So that brings me to our one big question for today. But before we get there, here's an ad from one of our sponsors. Memento Mori is the premier oddities and curiosities shop located in Los Angeles. Visit us at 1507 Wilcox Avenue at Sunset Boulevard in the heart of Hollywood, Fridays through Sundays, 11 to 6 p.m. Or shop online at www.mementomori-la.com. So as you can probably guess, our big question for today is what are your true life ghost stories? And since I've shared a little of what people have said on Hi-Ho in a previous episode about this, here's a recording I got via email recently from a YouTube listener. Now, I don't want to give anything away, but I do want to give a brief trigger warning to anyone who is sensitive to hearing about self-harm and suicide. 
There was a brief but not insignificant mention in here, so if that's something you don't want to hear, you can skip ahead to hear from Joe again about what he's working on. But first, here's the story. Hi, Joshua. This is Mary Carolyn, and I told you I was going to send you my true ghost story, so here it is. I am 73 years old now, and this happened when I was around nine. So it's been over 63 years since this happened. I have never forgotten it, and I have never had any experience or thought or revelation that led me to believe this was a dream or something I imagined. I remember it as absolutely real. One of the worst things I think that can happen to a person is to have a supernatural experience and to have everyone tell them that it didn't happen or they were dreaming or it's their imagination. And then if the person insists, they become subject to sanctions, punishment, being told to be quiet, even carried to the point where they're told that they're mentally unstable. So, When this happened, I was told, of course, by the people I told it to that I was only dreaming or imagining it. But I knew different, and I still know different. So when I was eight years old, my family purchased a house in Houston and moved in. This would have been like 1955. We were very excited to get the house because it had air conditioning, which was something unusual at that time. And living in Houston, the air conditioning was a real boon to dealing with that climate. So there was a lot of happiness about moving in and it was a nice little house and it had a huge backyard and I was an only child. And so I had my own room and it was was a nice place to grow up. However, there was this feeling that I had the whole time I lived there, which was until I graduated high school and went away to college, that there was a sadness in that place and it had affected me. I don't know if that was just my personality, that I was a melancholic type person or if it was actually the house. But anyway, here's what happened. I had my own room and it had two twin beds in it and they were placed in an L shape so that the foot of the guest bed, which my cousin slept in when they came over, the foot of it touched the side of the head of my bed. And I liked to sleep facing the wall and there was a big window there. So I enjoyed laying next to that window. And one night I was awakened by the sound of breathing and I was facing the wall. So the sound was coming from behind me. And I laid there for a long time thinking, what is that? And, and being a small child, I was just trying to figure out what I was hearing. And it occurred to me, it's breathing, someone is breathing and it sounded like someone in a deep sleep. And so I was a little bit frightened, but I was more curious than anything because by that age, I was already a believer in the supernatural and heaven and ghosts and angels and all of that. 
fairies in the garden. I lived in that world, even though my parents strictly forbade me from talking about those things. They were extremely conventional Southern Baptists. Anyway, I laid there for a while and I finally decided I had to see what it was. I'm assuming that it was about two in the morning. It was pitch dark, it was very quiet. We lived in a suburban area, not the city, so there were no night city noises. And I turned over and I saw a very tall man lying with the upper part of his body on the bed and his feet off the bed and onto the floor. And I laid there and looked at him a minute and, and thought, am I really seeing this? And he, he had his hands folded on his chest and his elbows beside his, the sides of his body. And he was dressed like he was going to work. He had on a pair of slacks, he had on shoes, he had on a belt, and he had on a white dress shirt. And I, I finally decided to get up and, and get a closer look. And I walked the two steps between my bed and the upper part of his legs, his thighs, which were draped off the bed next to me. And I leaned over and a very clear detail that I remember was that he had a pocket protector in his pocket and there were pens and pencils in it. And it was a white pocket protector. And I looked at him and he was in a deep sleep and he was making these deep sleep breathing noises. So here's where it becomes somewhat comedic. I went to my parents' room and I poked my mother and I said, mother, I'm whispering, mother, mother, there's a man in my bed, in my bedroom. And she came up off the bed like a shot of lightning and she started shaking my dad. George, George, wake up, wake up. There's someone in, in her room, in Carolyn's room. So I stood there while my dad got out of bed. He says, he says, I gotta go to the bathroom. And my mother's saying, there's no time, get in there. And he says, well, let me get my gun. Like every Texas gentleman, he had a six shooter that he kept in the top of the closet. And so he got up in the top of the closet and got his six shooter, which he had owned all of his life. He, he, he grew up as a cowboy on a ranch and he kept it even though he was a, a pharmacist, he kept his gun and his chaps and boots. So he was a Texas cowboy and he had to go to the bathroom so bad though that he made us wait and he ran to the bathroom and then he came back with his gun and we crept down the hall and he flipped on the light in my room and of course there was nothing there. Well, they weren't mad at me, but they told me that I had dreamt it. And so they told me to go back to bed. What's really strange about it was that I was not frightened. I was curious, I was excited, I was alert. And I was very awake and I knew that what I had seen was not a dream. Of course, the next day when I talked to my parents about it, they insisted that it was a dream. 
and that I should forget about it. But I couldn't forget about it. But I found out after a few months that talking about it or trying to convince them was eventually getting me in trouble. I can kind of understand because after all, what responsible parent in the 1950s wanted their little girl talking about having seen a ghost in her bedroom? They were protecting me, I understand that. So I filed it away as a secret. Occasionally over the years, I would tell someone my story, but I was careful because I didn't want to tell the story to anyone who was going to ridicule it. So when I became friends with someone who I discovered had an open mind, I would share it with them and they were interested. Fast forward till I was in my 50s and my father had passed and my mother was quite old and I used to visit her as often as I could and take my children. And I had told my children this story. So my mother and I were just talking casually one day about the house and how she acquired the house. Because as I understood it, when they moved, getting the house was somewhat easy. So she just casually mentioned to me that when they bought the house, it had been on the market a while because uh, they had the realtors had to disclose that the former owner had committed suicide in the house, that he had shot himself in the head in the bathroom. When she told me this, I was absolutely in shock. The first question I asked her was, why on earth would you purchase a house to raise a child in where someone had committed suicide? Weren't you in the least bit concerned that there might be some unhealthy influence there? And she, being the practical, intelligent, uh, highly practical, skeptical woman that she was, flipped her hand and absolutely dismissed it. She said, absolutely not. None of that is real. And I didn't believe in any of that. And we needed to move and we got, we got a good deal and it was on the market. And it never occurred to me to, to give it a second thought. Well, I didn't mention to her about the ghost that I saw in my room because I did not want to bring that up as I had learned some 40 plus years earlier not to bring that up because she just wouldn't hear it. But I pondered it and pondered it and it began to occur to me that the man that I saw that night was the former owner and that he was still there, at least at that time, and that he was sleeping in his bed from his lifetime because where he was positioned would have been the bed sitting in the middle of the room and making the optimum use of space in my bedroom which was arranged quite differently because I had two beds in there and it wasn't that big I had to kind of squeeze it in but I believe now after all these years that that was the owner who committed suicide in the house prior to when we bought the house. And that he had come home from his ghostly job 
and was still dressed in his work clothes and had laid himself down to go to sleep and that he was sleeping in what had been his space in his former life. Many, many years later, my mother passed and I prepared her house and sold. I had the inside painted and refurbished. And I had my priest come and bless and exorcise the house because I did not want any residue of this person's life there to bother anyone who might purchase the house. So that's my ghost story. In the decades that I have lived since then, I am solidly convinced that what happened that night was a real experience and that I observed the former owner of the home I lived in. Thank you, friends, for contributing your voice to the show. I love hearing what everyone has to say. If you're feeling jealous and want to put your voice into a hunting season episode, download the HiHo app. It's free. There's no ads. I don't work for them. There's no hidden fees. It's just an app, and I think it's pretty cool and allows us to have conversations back and forth. And if you don't want to send video, you can just block out your face and send some audio while I look at your ceiling or a black void or something. That's it for today's show. Stay tuned after the credits to hear more about how you can get involved in haunting season. And I want to thank you again, Joe Dove from the Disc Dungeon Podcast. Where can everybody find your stuff? Oh, my man. It's always good to be here. Thank you for having me. You're the best. I'm so glad you were able to be on our podcast and we're super excited to discuss Music Curses 32 with you. And that should be out around December 10th or so. Julian is mastering it. You can find us on all your favorite streaming services, including iPods, iTunes, and Google Play and such, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, all the good guys. You can talk to me directly by talking to me on HiHo. Yes, if you ever remember my voice from the previous episodes of Haunting Season, it's because I partake in the old hi-ho. It's a lot of fun and I highly recommend it too. And you can find me on TikTok and Instagram at Disc Dungeon or just Joe Dove. Alright, thanks Joe. Haunting Season is written and created by Joshua Sterling Bragg. That's me. And is a joint production of Mac Yellen and Believe Limited. Thanks again to our special guest, Joe Dove from the Disc Dungeon Podcast. We've got links to his show in the show notes below. This episode was executive produced by Mac Yellen, Ryan Gielen, Patrick James Lynch, and creative support came from Cody Dugan, Jessica Richmond, Mel Forrest, and my wife, Courtney Barber. Haunting Season's editor is Colby Crow and Drama Del Rosario, and he uses music for the show made by North Innsbruck. You can find different content from Haunting Season on all of our platforms. YouTube has the scary stories instagram has spooky photos and updates tiktok has horror movie recommendations and reviews and we're now on the app hi ho where you can contribute to the show also if you want to send something to me yourself we've got a p.o box now send anything cursed weird witchy or just plain fun and i'll add it to my shelf of oddities and shout you out on tiktok send stuff to p.o box 9681 glendale california 91226 all this information is in the show notes below thanks for listening friends and remember we're more likely to survive if we stick together I'll see you next time.